yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. Ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan. Big day today. I feel like this Mm. is a... Exciting moment for the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast. We've had so much fun over the past year and a half, two years, reading and discussing the world of the First Law. We did the original First Law trilogy. We've done all the standalones. We even started the Age of Madness trilogy. And we even interviewed Joe Abercrombie himself. That we did. So much love and support from all the First Law fans out there. This is a flagship series for us. Monumentous uh, part of the Friends Talking Fantasy history. We love the First Law world. And we've taken a break from it for far too long. That we have, Charles. And... I think it's time, uh, probably far past time. You know, we did the <laughs> hiatus and the probably the biggest bummer of when we had to time the hiatus was not being able to finish the Age of Madness trilogy before mm-hmm. we had to do that. And we've been back for a little while now. Other commitments we had to get done had gotten in the way. But don't you worry, First Law fans out there. You know where our hearts really are. We have not yet made of our hearts a stone because we absolutely love and adore the First Law world and all the folks that out there. That we do. And we're going to finish this too. series. I'm telling you, we, we are going to do it. It was so funny back before our hiatus. One of our one of my proudest achievements of the show was getting an advanced copy of the Wisdom of Crowds. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was holding the gold in my hands. I never thought, as a fan of First Law for over 10, 15 years, that I would get a, a advanced look into how this series ends. And you know, we I read through the whole trilogy, read through the Wisdom of Crowds, so that we could interview Joe Abercrombie. Guys, we interviewed him. That episode is in our catalog scroll back and check that out and then like we we took this break before we could just get the discussions recorded and like you said dylan it's one of the biggest um detractors of taking the hiatus was we didn't finish it but now we're here and you know you know first law fans that i reread this book fresh off of rereading it to have this discussion because we know you guys expect some top tier first law conversations to be happening and I'm super excited to be actually talking about this book with you, Dylan, for the first time here on the show. Kind of said it better myself, Charles. I reread as well. I think I've now read The Trouble with Peace three times, mm. I think. And then maybe A Little Hatred four times. And I, yeah, I'm going to have a great time actually getting into this with you. I don't think we've really talked even that much you and i Mm. about the trouble with peace but we do agree on the idea that this is abercrombie's best novel to date oh yeah 
right? Yeah, on the same page about that. I think just we love all of them, obviously. Mm-hmm. And my general sense with the books is Abercrombie, as he said on our episode, he's a fresh, young, <laughs> still improving voice in the genre, a rising <laughs> star sure. who's already risen quite a bit. But he, yeah, I think he does generally keep getting better and i'm like almost every book in the first law universe more than the previous one but the trouble with peace is the exception the wisdom crowd's way up there for me too but i think just beginning to end the way that this whole story arc goes it's like as complete and fulfilling a story as we've got it it's just a work of it's a masterpiece Charles I agree I think this is like Abercrombie has perfected his voice throughout the first law novels and this novel is the perfect first law novel I think he has been building up to this for a while he this this book is full of great quotes and the narration is so alive and so entertaining even when it's two characters talking about like a sea-line plot it is fascinating and funny and entertaining. It's just perfect. And then I think he breaks all of that when he goes into Wisdom of Crowds, which we will talk about that on another day. But I think this is kind of him being like, I have perfected the first law novel. Here it is. And now let's see where we can go after this. And what you end up with is like a masterpiece, like you said, a masterpiece. Yeah, it. The Wisdom Crowds is such a subversion of, Mm. and we won't get too into any of details, of course, in the Wisdom Crowds, but it's such a subversion of a typical just arc of a story (laughs) that it's it's jarring in some ways. And we expect subversion from Joe Abercrombie, of course, but this feels like the perfect balance, the trouble with peace of... Of course, the characters are still subversive and unique and different. And Abercrombie's voice is totally there. But it hits on these beats in such a satisfying way all the way through. And that was a a big criticism that people have of the original First Law trilogy. Right. Is it's very much one story told throughout three relatively long Uh, novels and Mm -hmm. trilogy and if you don't have the patience for that then i can see how it might not be as great a fit for you but he's gotten to this point where individual books in a trilogy tell a very complete story and and this is this is a fantastic it's hard to talk about the blade itself as a individual book or you know Mm -hmm. um before they're hanged as an individual book but uh, yeah i think you know those were his first books he'd ever written, his first published yeah. novel was The Blade Itself. And now here you are. This is eight books, you know, into this series, if you count the standalones. Maybe nine if you count um, the short story anthology collection. Sharp ends. Yeah, so he's gotten you, the confidence in his voice and the confidence in his plotting and his storytelling is terrific and so much respect for him when he just breaks it all towards the end of this novel. (laughs) But for now, like what I want to keep coming back to with this book is one, just how it's like the perfect Abercrombie first law book. And two, how it kind of 
stands out as a second book in a trilogy. Like, how often do we get the second book slump in a fantasy trilogy where yeah. it's like, okay, we're still building up to the big battle. Like, that's going to come in the third book. So my characters are going to wander around for a while until I write myself to the end of the second book. But this is we get a trilogy so different and um, a second book in a series so strong that uh, I'm just really eager to get into the plot points. We will, yeah. That middle book syndrome has Mm -hmm. run rampant in fantasy among trilogies, but it has not struck the Age of Madness. And it is is time, Charles, at long last, for us to really dive into this conversation. So it also means it's time for me to give a spoiler warning. Mm. And that is that it's... We're going to get into this. We're not going to hold back uh, with anything in the First Law universe up to and including the trouble with peace. We will not get into the wisdom of crowds just yet. So you don't have to worry about that one. But if you haven't read up to the trouble with peace, then now's a good time to turn this down your headphones, catch up with your Abercrombie works, and come right on back to Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. Well said, Don. I agree completely. Let's not delay any longer. I think we should just kind of maybe jump around by character as we tend to enjoy to do when we talk about Abercrombie's works is really get into each mm-hmm. character individually. And I think the character we need to start out with is King Orso. Because yeah. this is a very interesting character in the world of Abercrombie and he has a lot going for him in this book. He does. Orso's my favorite character in <laughs> this trilogy. I'm pumped to get into him. You called him off the air. We are talking a little bit. And you called him self-aware Jazal, yeah. which I, I I love that. I mean, in all the ways where Jazal is unable to see his privilege. At, oh, and, you know, rest in peace, Jazal. Rest in peace, Jazal. That's, you know, yeah. too soon. He had a rough life. Too soon. <laughs> right. Yes. Um there might have been just a bit of foul play on the part of a particular mage. I think maybe this. so. Right. Uh, so anyway, yeah, in all the ways that Jazal is unable to see his privilege at the start of the First Law universe and unable to see the ways in which he hasn't really accomplished much, Orso is just so aware of those that he leans the complete other way toward this self-deprecation and this lack of confidence in his abilities and it's only exacerbated now that he has all this responsibility as king it's you know before his prince he just didn't have to step into any of these huge roles to the same extent now he's getting an idea of what it looks like inside things like the closed council and he feels like he needs to step up but he's just struggling to figure out how to do it and this first opportunity for him to try to do well it comes up with uh Fiedert and Wetterland who mm. is uh yeah uh, he is in a situation where he I believe raped and murdered a person and he in front of is... a bunch of people <laughs> right yes and he is awaiting trial in the house of questions he has a window uh-huh. let's not let's not forget That's he something. does have a window 
<laughs> yeah, it's it is stressed multiple times, <laughs> except for when Lord Isher is describing the situation to Leo Dan Brock, and he's like, he doesn't even have a window. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like several is very Abercrombie, like several instances of people for staying sure. he has a window, and it's like a nice room in the house of questions, but then uh, Isher has no, uh, <laughs> no integrity is it's like it doesn't even have a way yeah, exactly anyway, he knows how to manipulate being... leo he's like leo's right wouldn't even he would believe it instantly if i told him so yeah <laughs> so anyway Orso, he's trying to figure out what to do about feeder and wetterland here because mm-hmm. he's a member of the open council uh, for wetterland. sure so, so it's like it's it would be very controversial if mm-hmm. he were to be hanged or very controversial among the uh you know the quote-unquote little people if mm-hmm. uh you know the non-noble folks if he was not uh hanged or something so let free yeah trouble in the closed council for king for sure for sure and then of course the closed council's advice is non-action just have bureaucracy (laughs) keep this guy in jail for the rest of his living life which (laughs) uh to orso's credit he's like certainly we can do something in these matters um so, you know, Lord Isher talks him into this plan, which obviously was a setup to embarrass him at the actual trial, which, um, you know, Lord Isher says, let him confess. But then he only portrays Wordland as a victim uh, of the close council at the trial. It's like, here's the close council. They dare to, like, hang one of us or imprison one of us, torture one of us. He's clearly been tortured. This is horrible. This is an outrage. And of course, Leo, totally buying into that, not having the political savvy that someone like maybe a Savine or an Orso might have to understand people have hidden agendas and are trying to try and make you think a certain way by inflating Although Orso falls ego. right in Daisha's trap, too. He does. And maybe, I think there's a degree of naivety that that Orso still has at the start. And he's almost mm-hmm. desperately looking for someone to latch onto who's actually mm-hmm. got some sort of honor, integrity, and desire to do well. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have these big images of what it is like to be king, how you can make all of this difference. And uh, he sees Isher as someone who must be on his side. And he very quickly learns that's, not the case during this Wetterland incident. Exactly. Learning how, like, Only. how little a king can do, how Jazal was, like, pretty much as good as you can accomplish, just complete, like, puppet uh, <laughs> right. who is willing to just be this handsome, well chinned, uh, you know, g- great jawline face for the Union while doing very little. Right, but this is almost even worse because you're it's breeding um, unrest and contempt right. for leadership. And it kind of, you know, Leo, this is when he leaps to his feet and denounces the trial as a travesty, much to Savine's horror. And, you know, Orso ejects Brock and sentences uh, Wetterland to hang which is a big deal for Orso because he hates hangings. 
and of he course bloody he, hates hangings. He bloody hates them, and or of does course he, hate he can't bloody even get hangings. Both, I'm sure. <laughs> and of yeah. course, he's like, I can't even hang a man right because the joke is that Wetterland's hanging was totally botched and was this whole yeah. embar- It didn't go right. There's a, something went wrong with the mechanism and. It was completely botched, which he's like, I can't even do this, right? I look like such an idiot. I've lost control of the council, and I can't even send it to a guy to hang without there being an issue, you know? And that's a yeah, thing. Yeah, let's think- go. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's go quickly back because I want to note a moment that's just a great example yeah. of how rewarding it is to read through all of Abercrombie's work. Because we do get questions sometimes where it's like, oh, can I start with a little hatred or can I just read the standalones? And the answer is yes but like you could i would never but it's so much more rewarding to read through all of it and even just these little moments that would mean very uh wouldn't have much meaning to someone starting with the age of madness where bremer dan gorst uh you know he's the one who removes leo from the chamber and he then he's like uh it's nothing he's got a squeaky voice like it's nothing personal um but he's like send my regards to your mother (laughs) which is we know that bermuda and gorris had like this giant crush on finreed and brock Mm -hmm. in um the heroes so it's such a funny little easter egg moment yeah leo's like makes no sense and abercrombie has the restraint to just be like look you either get this because you've read the heroes or you don't get it but people just have these moments that don't really make sense sometimes to the right, point yeah. of view character, but make total sense to us as people who've read through all of Abercrombie's work. So yeah. I, I just wanted to note that because it's such a it's such a moment that means a ton for longtime readers and it's something you could totally miss. If you yeah, there's a bunch of those anything. moments too throughout the book that I'm sure we'll, we'll pick up on. Yeah. Um, uh, there's some good ones around multiple Blanca with gorse and too dog man and gorse like yeah, Cardotti's gorse house of leisure yeah, yeah, where he's acting like, he's like triggered very <laughs> uncomfortable and very yeah and he's like trying very hard to make sure nothing happens to orso and, and japo it, oh, so too you can enjoy yourself a little yeah oh could well you, japo could yeah, you imagine not the, reading he looks like um, a northman right best served cold and then being yeah. getting that description of japo but we'll get there we'll get there. we're getting out of we'll get there we're so eager um yeah. but yeah, yeah it's funny to watch course throughout all of, throughout all of this but um yeah so orso's obviously struggling to go his like get some kind of authority but he's endearing because he keeps that sense of humor that self-deprecation that we've talked about and he is honestly trying to do something right and that's something we need to keep in mind as we hop around characters like this is like one of the main themes of this trilogy and particularly this book is like the new generation coming up and replacing the old generation like all most of these main pov characters and like you have leo orso savine rica they're all kind of inheriting this world and it's interesting to see how they are make the same mistakes learn the same lessons like society is not really progressing like all of these things are happening and with orso in particular he's trying his best to live up to this title of king and he's learned some stuff from jazal but he's inherited a totally different world and even though he's learned some of these 
more um, endearing character traits, he's not able to keep his kingdom under control. And that continues to happen with these burner attacks. Um, you know, we got this demonstration of Kernsbrick's steam engine, which triggers off a really fascinating Little People chapter, which I loved. That was one of the better ones, I thought. And um, it's the, the civil unrest that's happening in the city. And sure, you could, it's nothing that Orso explicitly did to cause this. He kind of inherited these disdain for the government and all these and the and the crown and all of that but he's certainly reaping all of the all the negative assets of it yeah i feel for feel for ourself big fan of his but that is a great little people chapter the little people chapters being the ones where you get this head hopping from abercrombie and just the part of the genius of abercrombie is to be able to so quickly ground you in a new character's voice and how they see the world and we get that on full display in in this chapter and just i think something interesting that abercrombie does differently than when he's played with this in things like the heroes is it's not like every character dies right it doesn't have that same level of like theme to it or that lying through it so you just really don't know what's going to happen to each character and there's even a part where it's like in Therese's point of view yes it was obviously a very important character the queen like, Therese oh my guy is she gonna die yeah it's like is she on the chopping block right now and there's this moment too she's like this refined queen styrian woman and then uh, there's <laughs> it's like i'm trying to remember if it's like the high justice or something but you get his point of view and he's like i've always appreciated uh queen therese in ways that other people haven't and i know how hard it's been for her and then he just gets his like head blown open (laughs) and like his blood is like all over therese and therese is like trying to put his skull back Uh, together it's just a really gruesome scene Mm -hmm. and you're also i think leading up to that it's a really cool thing Abercrombie does in there, right? Because he runs through everyone's thought process, like individually, when they get their point of view, leading up to Dude. the moment of the explosion, right? Right. So we get kind of what everyone was thinking ahead of the ahead of time, right? Mm. And how people perceive it differently. Uh, and we also get some to spend a little bit of time in like Therese's point of view before uh, for our clean rating, the crap hits the fan <laughs> and you get to see like Therese, who's just kind of been this very staunch uh, mother mm-hmm. to Orso, always pushing him. You get to see underneath that exterior, that's that icy exterior that's been there since the original First Law trilogy and you get to see how much she actually cares for Orso and how yeah. she feels. She's always you had realize to it's her role. driving reason to exist. It's like the main thing that she's yeah. motivated to focus on is making sure Orso is secure right. and stable. Like that's her primary motivation, which is kind of endearing for her. Yeah. And there are things that you just don't get in these other fantasy novels where people You've said this, Charles. Some people are very precious about their point of view characters. Sacred, like George yeah. is, yeah, George R. R. Martin is one that we uh, evoke all the time with this, where 
they're either a point of view character or they're not a point of view character. Yeah. And that is that. Mm-hmm. And it's so cool how Abercrombie lets us get beneath the outside view of right. some of these characters. So, pumped about the little people. Great yeah. chapter. And uh, it concludes with Yuru Sulfur actually exposing himself <laughs> as an eater. And you get Orso's view of like, oh, my dad said that he fought eaters in Adua way back, but this is out of control. Right. And he basically is able to stop the little uprising in there single-handedly. Even yeah. Gorst isn't there because Orso gave Gorst the day off. So <laughs> right. he's like, I can't do anything right as king. Like, clearly I'm like, okay, like... The guy deserves one day off. I'll give it to him. And then it's a day where there's this uprising this uh, in in the middle of this demonstration. Right. Exactly. And it just goes to show you how, you know, another reason why I would recommend just starting in publication order for Abercrombie's work, because you get to see the evolution of this writing process, like you said, with the little people of... You know, he was like starting to experiment with it a lot, particularly with um, the heroes, and right. which is the second standalone. And then he's continued to do it ever since. And I feel like in this trilogy, he's really gotten comfortable with using it as a device, not just to be creative with POV and showing that, you know, these decisions had consequences and affected people's lives. Life is cheap, that kind of stuff. But he's also presenting different sides of a very complicated like social movement class movement going on in this world that started in a little hatred with the situation was it Valbrek where they rose up yeah that first city and then now here because he's trying to portray that kind of industrial revolution workers rights like movement and He's showing some of that in these moments. Not every character dies. And you get little glimpses into POV characters that may change your perception of the character. And um, overall, it's really fascinating. And then you you, you end it with Euro Sulfur <laughs> revealing to be an eater, even though we're told, oh, magic is leaving the world and blah, blah, blah. But I can still, like, I can still be the boss if I want to like I still have these powers and it's a it's a fun reminder that um, there's still some cards to be played with poor Eurosophilar he's still a, a, a presence a threat even though people are taking the banking house of Valentinbach very lightly these days Eurosophilar well, maybe not around. the banking house they're taking the idea of Magi very lightly right, right, I think right. people take the banking house very seriously they just don't yeah but they're criticizing they're more open bias. in criticizing it and attacking it than they ever would have before oh yeah well I mean the first thing uh, that they burned in Valbeck was the bank exactly that's like the big thing that like uh, you know Baez and Sulphur are so pissed about is like okay do what you want but you don't burn a bank of Valen and Bulk. That is, no. I mean, the don't real power. My master would be most displeased, <laughs> which is like yeah. the biggest threat you could say to somebody in this world. It is interesting, though, and it's another thing that I, I've thought about reading this series in through the lens of what would it be like to just start with Age of Madness is the character of Baez is overwhelmingly in this series like his threat 
is built upon just people being like, don't mess with that guy. Right. Like, that guy's a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. But we don't, there's not as much show of that in this series True. anywhere near to the extent that there's show of that yeah, this is one of the in the first times. law trilogy. Yeah. So I mean, Baez makes an appearance this... at the beginning of this book, but you don't get a true sense of what he can do. I am greater than Juvens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm greater than Aos himself. Yeah. It's like you hear that he did things like that, but it's just not the same without yeah. having witnessed who Baez is. And it's almost kind of the, the point, right? Because trilogy. you have these characters like making the same mm. mistakes. You have a Glockta telling Savine, like, don't make any deals with Valentin Bach. Like, don't talk to, to Baez. And then they, they talk to Baez and they can't help but be like, why is this guy talking to me? He's, he's a short little man. And I, like, he's a bald old guy. Like, I don't. You know, who cares? You know, I'll be a little arrogant towards him. You know, it's like, I've got power. I've got influence in court. Like, I can, I can, you know, dance with this guy toe-to-toe in a conversation. And meanwhile, Glock is, like, terrified. Like, don't, like, be doing that stuff, okay? <laughs> He's a dangerous guy. And, and it's those same mistakes being made over and over again. And I think of a whole new generation of people being like, burn the bank. So it's like, you don't know what they're <laughs> capable of, though. So you may not want to do that. It's not that simple kind of a thing. Exactly. Yeah, I've never thought of it through the lens that you're talking about right now where it actually helps to get the themes across of mm-hmm. the novels where if you are only in the new generation's point of views which is where we are I mean, right the probably the, the oldest person that we're following is uh gunner broad and it's not like he was wrapped up in any of the previous events well, i'll also um, say that clover held one of the shields with clover the versus, okay, that's, sorry um, clover is Logan. probably the oldest that's a great point but it's not like clover was involved in any of the real like political machinations of any of that stuff. He held the shield in the fight between Fenris and Logan, but he's kind of laid back since. And I'll also say that Clover is almost supposed to contrast with a lot of our newer generation characters Mm -hmm. where he's realized the best that someone like him can hope for is just to get out of the way of all of these Someone things. like Stout, not actually who's relearning right. all he's like making these same mistakes and Clover sees that and knows that he's like making these mistakes and like is a bad guy but he doesn't like take them on you know until of course the end of this book but it's one of the things where it's like he follows orders he does what he's told to do he gives him counsel until that moment where the balance of powers change and opportunity strikes. But he knows, like, he's that seasoned veteran. He's like, he's yeah. got to let these kids make their mistakes. What are you, why, getting involved isn't going to change anything. It'll just get you killed. Like, like kill your, kill wonderful, kill your friends. But, like, you, you got to take the moments when they make sense. And he, all, he talks about surprise a lot in this book, which is rereading it was kind great of funny. foreshadowing. Great foreshadowing where it's like, surprise is the best tool you have against an enemy, right? It's like, right. And you got to pick your moment. And you got to pick your moment, exactly, when they're fighting the, um, the Shanka. So, 
Yeah, it's it's when you're talking about the future generations making the same mistakes. Here's someone who remembers the last generation and has learned those lessons and has become not this wise a guidance of beacon of knowledge, but more of like I'm going my own lane here. Like let them do what they want to do. I'm staying out of it. I recognize how to get killed when I see it. Okay, so it's kind of funny <laughs> to see that through him. On the Clover talk, I just want to say I absolutely adore that scene where he's talking to Calder and Calder just keeps going on and on about like, oh, uh, we have these problems like Stour. He's the future of the North, but, uh, you know, he's reckless and he's going through all these things and Clover just keeps going. Mm. <laughs> mm. And then he's, there's like a reflection where he's like, that's the perfect response because people can just hear whatever they want when you go, right. mm. Exactly. He survived <laughs> this like, long. He's one of the few. So he's mm-hmm. got those survival tactics, and which is like, let these <laughs> power players play out what they're going to do and just try and be on the winning side. You know, that's his, that's his mantra. Um, but before we get too far down the clover rabbit hole here, I, I want to proceed also to the end here because after that whole steam engine debacle, we go to what is perhaps my favorite scene in this novel and what is also perhaps one of the best audiobook performances I've ever heard, which is mm. the meetings with King Jappo. In Cardati's House that of Leisure. Like, these scenes are great. The performance that Stephen Pacey has when he's playing Jappo as this blasé guy who's got this gravelly... Mm-hmm. Like, nice blasé drop. What? Nice drop with blasé. Thank you. Thank keep you. going, man. Well, because that, that he's got, like, the open robe. He's in this debaucherous yeah. place. But he's got this menacing voice and he's putting on this air of like oh i'm the you know the lazy son who inherited all this and just wants to like um do drugs and and explore all my sexual desires and all this and uh that's kind of all i'm into and it's just funny I, i just love those scenes where you have leo and then you have orso and they both take a meeting with chapo and you you learn about chapo as it goes it, it's the great great scenes i, I mean he, these are some of the best scenes in the book for me fantastic and you get you get this just inability from leo to even understand anything about what's going on when he's interacting with Jappo. You also get the, and this is a very interesting portrayal where Leo, the, it's pretty clear at this point that he's got, he's somewhere not just straight on the spectrum of his sexuality, but he's repressed. Like he, so he can't stop looking at, that Jappo has this like open shirt and kind of like a revealing uh, lower garment as well. And he's <laughs> trying so hard not to focus on it. So he's completely out of his element, Leo. And he can, and he even just detests Jappo to the point where he's unwilling to 
offer all the things that Savine told him he should offer. Meanwhile, Orso goes in there and he's got less to offer Japo, but they're like two sides of the same coin and they kind of hit it off. And it's it's great character writing because you learn about Japo from Leo's interactions with him and then it makes total sense when Orso comes in and they do pretty much get along. It also and, is one of the things I love about Orso's character is that he actually is pretty good at what he does. Like he has talent and he has like some gift, some natural abilities to lead. Um, but he's just like was he's got all these things set up against him. Like the people hate him, and like he's inherited this close council that's so co- connected from society and all these riots and things. And in moments like this, where he's able to make a connection with Japo and like relate to him and kind of uncover some of the performance that he's putting on to make mm-hmm. that connection, he actually wins Japo's respect. And Japo's like well, okay, I guess I'll just stay out of it, you know? And you're like, oh, that's that's pretty cool that, like, Orso was able to get the W on Leo from that. Like you said, with no cards. He's like, other than, like, that Leo guy, he's kind of, uh, you know, kind of annoying, kind of an oh, idiot, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, you know, you've got a point there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hate that guy. <laughs> there was a line, I'm looking for it, um, where they had... Uh, Something about the idea of, like, this idea of, oh, I find reputations rarely fit people all that well. What are they, after Mm. all, but costumes we put on to disguise ourselves? You know, they're they're making this connection of, like, we are, like, second-generation royalty. Like, people think about us in a certain way, but, you know, we have our own stuff going on. And they were able to make that connection. I love dialogue where there's double meanings and, like, second hand plot points being implied you know game of thrones does a great job of it and this scene does a great job of it too between uh orso and joppo of like like hey we're both kind of like got a lot in common here there's comments about like understanding people's sexual preferences and stuff it's like they get each other right (laughs) and they've read the same books and they're geeking out over that and, you know, Joppo kind of stands up, like, buttons the robe up, and is like, oh, you got my ruse. Like, you know, that, that kind of stuff <laughs> was well, super entertaining. Well, we get that costume-type talk uh, starting with the masks, like the literal masks at yeah. first, that Orzo was like, we should take these off. And Joppo's mm-hmm. like, that's not what people do here. I, I'm not going to do the awesome voice that you were able to <laughs> get going there. I, I don't have that kind of vocal range, Charles. But uh, first he's like, uh, yeah, we should take these masks off. And then Orso's like uh, telling, uh, or sorry, Japo's telling Orso, like, that's not the thing that's done. And Orso's like, we're kids. Like, or we can do whatever. What we do is what's done. And Japo's mm-hmm. like, fair enough. And then <laughs> They're talking further, and then Orso realizes, okay, you're like me, and he's like, we should also remove the masks of this, like, we're profligate idiots who grew up in privilege and have no, like, no ability to actually understand uh, anything politically, we're not sharp at all intellectually, it's like, that's not true, so I want you to... Like, show more that than hang like, out oh you warehouses. want me to you know <laughs> right you want me to take that mask off too 
And I love that. Like right. you're saying, the double meanings and the play from the literal to the figurative mask. It's right. it's brilliantly done, that scene right. all around. And they're both like, you know, why are we going to, do we really want to inherit this conflict? It's like, I, I've never been to Styria. I've heard it's nice, but I don't care. You know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of stuff. And he's like, yeah, you got a point. I much prefer to hang out here than like try and march into battle. Gross. So they're, like, they are having that <laughs> mutual connection. And at the end, it's basically just like, well, I can't. But I can't like I have no interest in doing anything. And it's like, okay, that's the best I can hope for. It's like I just won't I just won't try. So really fascinating conversation. One of the best written like double entendre dialogue scenes. And how great is it that we read Best Serve Cold and Marcado's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, this baby could be anybody, but he's gonna be the like heir apparent no matter what. And I'm gonna say he's the heir of this lord, and then now confirmed that it's shiver's son like how great well, is that <laughs> all but all but confirmed exactly I I mean, it looks like a northman sounds like the performance sounds like right. shiver's voice it is his son i mean abercrombie was at oh, least it's deft son. enough to not outright say it like he does that a lot i, I like abercrombie's willingness to trust the reader to make connections and not explicitly say everything he's very good at that he commits to characters povs none of those characters would be like oh you're related to shivers so he can't make (laughs) that connection because none of these like leo and orso don't know who shivers is so they could say he looks kind of like a northman like because leo's seen a lot of northmen maybe he maybe leo does know who shivers is he must but he didn't make that connection um so yeah, Leo's not always the He's most not very observant. observant yeah, anyway. yeah, exactly. And, exactly. and the mask didn't come off for the Leo, which is off. another... Yeah. I think that the thing that we we get there is basically confirmation that it's not Rogant's son. It is Shiver's son, which is pretty incredible to think. And yeah, it is another movie. one of those moments that means nothing. Mm-hmm. really to a person who would be a new reader you're just like okay guess this guy looks like a northman and that means so much to us as people who have read through all of these previous books so absolutely love that love the restraint like you were talking about it's the only my only complaint mm-hmm. is we don't get more joppo in this I book love more which joppo. is such a Joppo stole the scene. He stole the scene. He came off the page. The performance (laughs) was excellent. I was like, this guy, I love this guy. But, uh, you know, he's too smart to get involved in all this. You know, I love how Mons Mercado is just going around like independent of all the Magi, spanking the Union at every turn. Like, all that is so great that she was able to to do all that. Helps when you have shanked on your side. Yes, she does have Shanked and Vitari and all that, but um, we'll we'll get more into that in a, in a short while. But I feel like we should round out the Orso conversation. Another nice thing he does while he's here is he like releases his mother. You know, that was kind of a a good show of of respect and compassion from Orso. Orso is definitely the mm-hmm. one of the most compassionate people in this whole series and he's like i could tell that you know 
this is where you want to be. This is the person you love and I want that for you. And then he gives her a purpose like find me a wife and make sure she's steery. And, you know, like those kind of olive branch mm-hmm. things, like very political, very thoughtful, very compassionate. And we love that for Orso. We do love that for Orso. It's so interesting to contrast him with Giselle, despite so many similarities <laughs> oh, no. where it's like you come the total opposite way i think with how you feel about orso than how like one feels about jazal at the start of the original first law where it's like he orso is just beating himself up constantly (laughs) and then you see in his actions like dude you're not that bad like you have a lot of skill sets you are generally good natured you're doing your best here and he does i think have of all the point of view characters probably the most compassion i'm trying to think it's interesting coming up reading who's like jazal's like i deserve this i deserve this absolutely even though he may be humbled on the road and learn some humility the minute they're like hey you want to be a general it's like yeah i deserve that Whereas Orso's like, this is a joke, right? Like, why am I here doing this? Like, something must have surely gone wrong for me to be in charge. You know, it's it's a funny, like, it's two different ways to look at privilege, right? You have one where, like, Giselle's affluenza uh, to uh, a peak. Nice. And, and then um, Orso is at least self-deprecating enough to realize, like, he's... Like there's humor in the fact that of all people he's the one in this in this point of privilege. So it's a it's a nice it's a nice little progression for the Jazal family. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, Charles, we got Blase from you, we got Affluenza. You're yeah. killing it over there. <laughs> I learned that one Let's... from you when we talked about Jazal last time. You dropped that line about him, and I never forgot. Oh wow! So it was a little, it was a little self-congratulatory there, but that makes sense while we're talking about Jazal. So yeah. let's uh, let's talk about the. I mean, after Joppa, we're pretty much getting toward Orso getting that army ready to face off against a rebellion, mm-hmm. and we're we're getting to the point where we get. We get that dinner scene. I don't know if that's the next thing you want to talk about, Charles, yeah. but I, I really I mean, like the, that scene. What's, what's interesting is, again, this is another like rare W for Orso. These, we get to see these moments that he is competent and capable. Like, we've had a few, right? He was able to track down um, Lord Marshal Brint as the conspirator, right? He reports back mm-hmm. to the council about... Um, his visits in Styria where he learned that basically Orso is ready to attack and we need to prepare to mount a defense. And then he uses that as a way to find out who's been tipping off Leo this whole time. And it proves to be Lord Marshal Brint. And that was a very clever plan. And even Toyful, who's the most clever of everyone, was like, gotta give, gotta give Orso credit for that plan. It actually worked. So that happens. Mm-hmm. And then he's parlaying with Leo and just absolutely, like, Leo just plays into his hand so completely in this. They make it clear 
a bunch of times that if Leo just charged the beginning, he held all the cards <laughs> to win. But Orso is holding on. He sent Toyful out there and he invited Leo to dinner and just stalled uh, him we... and stalled him and stalled him. The, one of my favorite moments around this scene is, by the way, love Corporal Tommy. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm he's the best. Corporal Tony he's as a character who's fantastic. That's another reward for people reading all the books mm-hmm. is Tony. And he's still Corporal. And he's like, be careful, <laughs> I'll make you admirable, a- admiral. And he's like, you wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's, he's very happy where he is. So he... And by the way, there's a lot of Tony... Like redemption, even I don't know if redemption's the right word because I like, did anything Growth. terrible, but like Tony actually showing bravery and courage throughout this. But he and he's weirdly like one of the most loyal guys in this book to Orso. It's right. He has some real character growth, which would go unnoticed to someone just starting out. But the fact that he was willing to like right. hold a standard and defend Orso. This guy dedicated his whole life to not fighting. This is the most, like, (laughs) this guy thrives in, like, mediocrity. He's like, you want to be mediocre. That's You need to find the level where you're important enough to not do the crap jobs, but not too important where you have any responsibility. He's like, there's that sweet spot in there somewhere. He's a less violent or, like, just, he's less violent version of clover's attitude yeah, him and clover have a lot and, in common about like how to live life and survive you know yeah clover feels way more i guess i don't know if machiavellian's the right word because he's not ambitious but he's just way more willing to do just awful things than i think right. tony would but anyway the moment i'm talking about that i love is how orso is like okay we gotta stall as long as possible so he's like, Tony, I want you to go over there and I want your salute to take like a half an hour or whatever he says. <laughs> and then you get Leo's perspective when Tony shows up and Leo just is like, oh, the guy dropped such an amazing salute on me. He's like, you know, all my, like all the officers, even of much higher rank than him, like they could learn a thing or two from this corporal. And then you just know, it's like Corporal Tunney just giving the most flamboyant, ostentatious salute he can think of. I love that Tunney has mastered the salute and can give an amazing one because here's someone who could care less about like the cause and like the chain of command and all of that but he knows that by perfecting the salute he gets to like keep like staying under the radar right so like oh i can do the salute just don't ask me to actually fight somebody but i can do this part you know and it's so many beautiful things coming together it's what makes his book so masterful like the fact that it's built on a all the other work Abercrombie's written so far, and it comes together so beautifully and interwoven. And these moments have multiple points of impact, and that's just another hilarious, fantastic. It's just a guy giving a salute, but it's built off of six different plot points that we've read across nine books. You know, it's incredible. It's one of the things I remember when we first got back to rereading Trouble with Peace. You shot me a text, Charles, and it was like. It's so nice to be back in the world of Abercrombie because he is able to make just these simple, oftentimes just conversation scenes, things like that, 
so entertaining in a way that's mm-hmm. so rare in the genre. Yes. And these kind of moments are exactly that, right? How we're, we spent probably over five minutes talking about just this funny individual moment of a salute. <laughs> and it's like, who else makes one salute? This like noteworthy, hilarious thing built on books, <laughs> like previous books, entire point of view. It's like nobody else does it like that. Though. So it's true. Every wonderful. line in this book could be quotable. It's, it's so rich with that voice that it's why I keep calling it the perfect Abercrombie book. It, it really is. And this moment where Orso's stalling for time with Leo and Leo's just eating it up, except the actual, you know, Orso's like, oh, you really have to try this cooking. You really have to try this food. And there's like, forget the, the food. The liver like, melts in your mouth, Charles. <laughs> you know, the liver, right? <laughs> uh, the liver did sound good. I've never, like, been hungry for liver before, but you know, I'd either. give that a try. It's good it wouldn't me. be my choice for the dinner if I was trying to stall. I'd be like... I don't know, maybe back in course, that time. You know, they had a bunch of courses yeah. come out. Was, that was the main, though. The main course was the liver, I think. Right, I think so. I think you can do better than liver for the main course. But it does melt in your mouth. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. so there you go. A great scene. Um, then you have the actual battle take place where Orso is just prepared at every moment. Surprise cannon attacks. He's got Lord Marshal Ruxted's reinforcements arriving. Forcing Leo into a charge. Uh, and um, just when he reaches the town square, it's abandoned. And um, that's when the cannon ambush happens and just opens fire on Leo and his charge. And what you get is like a really crazy ending to a second book and a trilogy where Leo Dan Brock is completely cut down. His, because the reinforcements come in time. Exactly, and like he could have had it Thanks all. Thanks to you know? he could have had it all, and he blew it. And this totally reckless plan. I think we should jump into some of Leo and Savine's plotting to get to this point. But all of it was so bold and daring, and you could say misguided too. Totally comes to this moment where they lose it all so spectacularly. His arm is becomes unusable he loses a leg he loses his good leg which is funny because now his bad leg is his good leg you know all that his only leg yeah so all that stuff happens completely cut down sentenced to hang and here's orso's thing with hangings again coming up at the end of this book such a great great build-up to this scene (laughs) where you have Again, how many times has Orso said he hates bloody hangings? We have the hanging in the beginning of this book that gets totally botched. And then now you have a hanging at the end. And again, you have, um, you know, someone that I didn't miss and was kind of happy to see go was um, Wetterland's uh, mother <laughs> get hanged. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, actually, I don't feel bad about that one. But it's all brilliant. Like Orso's complicated relationship with Savine. And then, like, his complicated relationship with hangings, his ability for compassion. It's all been so lovingly I don't know how complicated his relationship with hangings is. I'm pretty sure he stands strongly on he bloody hates them. (laughs) But, yeah, but he hates them, but he (laughs) He he orders them, them, but they don't go right. Like, 
all this stuff is being built up. It, within this book is being built up so incredibly well to, to the payoff of this moment where Orso staring at Samine, like Leo's next in line to be hanged and he just can't stomach it and he says stop life imprisonment and runs and runs off and that's where Orso's arc ends in this book. Mm. He also finds out that Savine is his sister. Yes, because, you know, Savine's defeated, discovered, and Orso visits her and is like, why? Why would you do this to me? Like, I and don't why didn't that. He was more concerned yes. about why she didn't accept the proposal. All right, so let's talk about Savine and Leo for a second. I feel like that's a natural transition from all this Orso conversation. Um, their storyline is pretty similar, but one of the scenes at the beginning of the book, uh, that I wanted to talk about was how Finry and Artie kind of ambush both Savine and Leo to orchestrate this wedding proposal. It's, it's, it's a fun scene. It is a fun scene. They're two characters that we know from previous installments to be these these two clever women who are in their own way. Like Finry's a bit more like military, like a daughter of a Lord Marshal type, and Artie's mm-hmm. a a bit more silly and we remember <laughs> but a lot of common sense of just also a bit too fond of drinking and you know true not being too yeah, serious no, i mean silly more in just the way that she She's speaks talks, and yeah. all that she's she's obviously clever as well yes and i mean they came up with a really good plan though and one that you can't really deny from the perspectives of either Leo or Savine. It's like at this point, Savine is already pregnant with her, um, with after having sex with Leo in uh, Swarbrick's office. (laughs) And we, we know that she can't really hide it that much longer. And it's, it's Leo's kid. So what is there to do from the perspective of this time's social structure but marry Leo? And he's a very eligible bachelor in this society, and she seems like a really good match for her. Like kind of this, this uh, brains and the brawn type right. situation, actually pretty similar to Finry's uh, previous marriage. Not previous marriage. Marriage, but obviously she's widowed now. The strategic alliance. Right. Finry and Artie, two interesting people to put in a room. Even their names are kind of similar. So it was funny to see them working together. And this was a plan that was pulled off spectacularly right then and there. They're engaged to be wed. And it's like, hey, we have Lord Isher getting married. And he so politely agreed to share his wedding day with the two of you so you can all get married together you know that's the, kind of the the way that this was all pulled off and there was a line in here that was kind of funny where or leo and sabine were talking and somehow glockta came up in the conversation and it's like wow you're willing to like be real like have glockta for a father-in-law and then the narration was something like 
He wasn't aware of it before, but he sure was now. Like a pig is aware of the slaughter or the butcher or something like that <laughs> was the line. It, it was just it was one of those again like scathing like the way sometimes Abercrombie doesn't hesitate to make fun of his own characters through their own narration. It's like this guy is as unaware as a pig being led to slaughter, you know, like that kind of a <laughs> kind of a comparison. Right. Leo is a bit of our our punching bag for the we used to talk about how Jazal would get roasted a lot by the pros where there's that one in that one sentence we would quote in before they're hanged where it's like he became dimly aware that that word dimly is just skating dimly aware that he might have had a privileged life and leo gets beat up sometimes by the pros and you you'd think anyone with a a bit of sense would be thinking about, oh, if I'm marrying Savine den Glockta, that means that Glockta, the arch lector, is going to be my father-in-law. That's probably one of the first things that they'd think about, but <laughs> not Leo. He's he's not always the sharpest tool. Not that he's a, a unintelligent person, but he's just like not a deep thinker. Right. right. This he's bigger picture kind of, that he's not been able to see and the fact that Finrain already got him into this situation and and all of that. Um, this is also kind of like a restart for Savine. Savine, at the beginning of this book, is still kind of suffering from the PTSD of when she survived the rebellion in Valbeck. And, um, Valbeck. you know, Valbeck. And she's also trying to save face in court she's not as dominating a presence as she once was and some of her competitors are trying to like sneak in and fill those cracks so this is almost like yeah you know what i was going to be queen like and that was like this i was so close to that and that was like this awesome thing that was going on for me it was all taken away but this is an opportunity like he does have good standing people like him i can work with this you know she sees it as a sensible match and she agrees to it and that kind of starts off savine's path in this story as well right she sees how likable the I guess, like, the image or persona of Leo seems to be. It's one of those things, it's like what Joppo said a while back, where he's like, I was expecting to detest you or so and love the young lion based on those reputations of yours. Meanwhile, Leo is a pretty unlikable person a lot of times when you actually get to know him, but the idea of Leo is what Savine wants to work with. And the idea of Leo is this for some reason, man of the people, uh, just because (laughs) (laughs) he's like actually a fighter and he's kind of this narrative that he was left to his own devices up north. That part's true. That he was left to his own devices and fought up north. Right. But for some reason, he became like this rallying cry for the people. And also he's this noble who is the picture of uh, what, people are supposed to be in the union right brave and handsome and uh, a real like force to be around at right. least 
like physically and his presence, even if he doesn't have the political know-how of someone like Savine. But that's part of why she sees him as a great match. Exactly. And Savine is able to make those back alley negotiations a lot of the time, um, you know, helping him make those political alliances, guiding him. And this is what she's learning being married to Leo in these early moments of like, how to guide Leo because he's so bullheaded, right? And he's so quick to a temper or quick to decide. And like, you're trying to get him to make the right decision. So she's like, oh, what do you think about this? Are you sure you want to do that? Like this, that she's trying to guide him. And it's it this, this, this one, the, the, the scene where they're in the balcony and she literally, they literally start like, getting intimate to me there's that expression like grab them by the balls she like literally does that in that scene which is just kind of a funny a funny thing of like how she kind of sees the beginnings of their relationship she tries to um, you know make all these plans and like behind his back basically using him as this like this shield this presence of like he's He's pure and good and loved by the people, and I can do all the back alley stuff to keep this machine running. You know, I, I can be that for him. And that's readily apparent when Savine learns of this these talks of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Leo had been, at first, almost just talk about, oh, this is what's going on, blah, blah. Uh, with Isher and Barazin, but then it starts to form into something a lot more real before Savine even gets involved. But once Savine gets involved, she pretty much <laughs> takes over in terms of the actual planning. And there's all these moments with basically everyone they come into contact with. That would be uh, like the Isher crew, then it would be Stour Nightfall, and then it, or is Ricca, and then Stour Nightfall. All those moments that you get Savine ensuring that Leo is out of earshot, and <laughs> then she starts running the show in terms of the negotiations. So with Isher, she actually fakes that she's having some sort of like pain from her pregnancy. Oh, right. And Leo, at that time, he, you know, he's still got some good-natured fool stuff to him and he starts running out of the room i'm gonna go get someone to help you and then uh, it's just like oh are you okay and she's like i'm fine like let's, <laughs> no, talk. let's, let's talk business <laughs> right right and She'll- she's like who do you imagine is going to be on the throne at the end of this and isher even the snake he is is like uh or so and she's like no like <laughs> at the end of this leo will be on the throne and he's like Okay, so that's how it starts is Savine. And there's a lot of justifications that Savine makes during this like pre-issue moment where she's like, oh, like I'm already walking into this. I have no option but to pretty much take this over and make sure it goes the way that they're planning. I don't know how much I completely buy all of them. I see her thinking, but she's... I think she's doing a lot of rationalizing and what she really wants is to be on the, like, be oh, there with Oh, for sure. She was throne, tempted you know? by the grab for power. She saw she had enough cards to do it, make an honest go of it, and she went for it. It's one of those things where it's like, 
you know, she could have talked Leo out of it. And Leo had no means mm-hmm. to stage a rebellion. But she's like, if we're going to do this, we got to do it right. And then she brings it past the point of no return. And making these deals with Isher and Stour Nightfall. And that's a good, that was a good exchange of dialogue. Stour Nightfall and, and Savine. Where Savine knew to like stand her ground. And Stour's like, oh... Say one thing about Leo, he's got good taste in women. And, you know, all this all this back and forth between the two of them was kind of fun. And, yeah, for sure, she's the one taking this way further than Leo could have ever taken it on his own. And surely, like, um, his mother would have tried to stop him or any of these other things. But here's Savine well, egging him on. Yeah, she did. Finry yeah. did urge him to go. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, that moment you're talking about with Stour is great. She basically walks up to him in a way where he's kind of got the sword out and she walks up to him where he basically has a choice to drop the sword or <laughs> to stab her. And right. he like drops the sword, like clatters the ground, right. kind of embarrassing for him. Right. And she called his bluff. Basically. She, yeah, she has a lot of presence, political acumen and all of that. And it's on full display, but she's... We use the word a lot, Machiavellian, and how she goes about it. She discusses with Ricca, who they actually had a pretty sweet moment in a little hatred, where they exchange the like necklace and uh, like the runes and the right. whole thing. Right, Sabine or, still wears uh, the. They basically runes. exchange necklaces, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And that's this very nice moment. It's kind of like Ricca. Seems happy to see Savine. Savine seems happy to see Ricca. And then it's got this like moment where you think, okay, they might actually be a good fit to work together here. And then she just goes completely behind Ricca's back later with how she deals with Stour. She's like, oh yeah, well, sure. if we end up on the throne, maybe that protectorate doesn't get protected so well. And right. And well, Stour because you know, remember, because she was going, she was negotiating with Rick and she was basically just playing the bully card of like, I'm not negotiating with you at all. Like, and then Ricka's like, so basically I do nothing and I get less except for this fine silk you're offering me. Like, this is all I get <laughs> for agreeing to fight with you. And she's like, yeah, you're not going to get a better offer once Leo takes the throne. You know, she's threatened, straight up threatening her, uh, which Ricka does not take kindly to. And it's a bold move from Savine to go to someone who showed you compassion and, and friendship and threaten them, essentially. <laughs> so it was that was tough. And then, of course, she goes straight to um, straight to the wolf, like you were saying, Stour Nightfall, to promise the promise Ulfrith, which is uh not cool savine mm. yeah i mean we've heard how conniving savine is we've heard that a lot from a little hatred but i think a little hatred was this almost grounding experience for savine yes and she has to see what's actually out there for the quote-unquote little people and how hard it is. And you think maybe, okay, maybe she's going through some character growth. And then 
she backtracks to her old self as <laughs> soon as she gets this opportunity to potentially put Leo on the throne and seize some power for herself. And that's on full display here. For sure. She keeps thinking in her head about like that moment where she felt powerless and how she never wanted to feel powerless again. And she interprets that as a way to just vie for the throne. It, it, it's, it's um an interesting way she talks herself into this. And um, let's see what happens next in the story here. We talked about the King Japo moments. I think the only thing extra interesting here is that Leo walks in on his friends, Jurand mm. and, how do you say Gloward. his name? Gloward. Gloward. Um, being intimate, and that like short circuits Leo's brain. He was already all flustered from dealing with Japo's open homosexuality to then run into a room to see two of his friends, of which he's had like these conflicting thoughts about. You were mentioning Dylan how he's kind of repressing those those. Um, I mean, he clearly him and oh yeah. Um, Jaren have this moment even before and there's so much it's all subtle subtext because we're stuck in Leo's perspective and he is so repressed he can't see it himself right but there's all these moments where it's so clear that he has feelings for Jaren and it's pretty clear Jaren has feelings for him Mm -hmm. and it's it's even when he comes back and he's married there's a moment in the prose where it's like he for some reason felt like he had betrayed something <laughs> like with oh, yeah. Jarend and there's this like unspoken agreement that he wasn't. Well, even says he, like, he, he feels something and then he like, also feels something downstairs, you know, right. like this that's all I can Yeah. <laughs> He's like and basically it's like he tells himself he's disgusted, but I think what he really is is feels betrayed mm-hmm. by Jerand like being with Cloward instead of him. He's also and there's forced a moment to face his own that. like repression too, which I can imagine right. is a lot to handle. Right. I mean, sometimes that's how it like shows up for people is they're like even they're more like uh, their experience of it is they think they're disgusted, but it's what they're disgusted in is that they themselves are repressed and they're there's a part of themselves that they're refusing to acknowledge and that shows up there's a moment before he walks in on uh Jaren and Gloward where he he basically is having this like very close to romantic intimate situation with Jarend, mm-hmm. and you think maybe actually something's gonna happen between them mm-hmm. and then i think it's glowered like walks in with or not maybe not glowered uh, someone else one of their other friends that they're with like walks in and he's like hey like drinks for everyone and then Leo's like oh yeah 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 and then it's like oh whatever that moment was it was kind of lost and that was that so that's uh, an interesting moment and one that definitely takes me by surprise or took me by surprise the first time I read it. Yeah. Right, right. And Abercrombie has a deft hand with all of that stuff. He's been writing in those details, like the things Leo notices about Jern, the way he feels about Jern at certain times, to then face that stuff with Jappo and then this. It's all very interesting. And what it does is it's another one of Leo's blunders where he kind of, Tell, like 
he defriends them essentially and like cuts them out of his blocked plans. on Facebook. Yeah, blocked on Facebook, exactly. And he's like, I'm doing this without them. I don't need them in their, like, debaucherous ways messing up my party. And that's the thing. Like, he's he's so misguided in his thoughts and his beliefs. Like, when Savine... Oh, wait, I can't remember if Savine finds out in this book or not. Does she? Uh, she doesn't find out the reason. Right. She knows that... She, she obviously knows Jaren isn't there. Right. But she I just can't doesn't she know finds why. Out. Okay, well, she finds out that. in the next... I right. mean, this is... this is. I don't know if this is spoilery. It's a very minor thing, but she, she does find out in the next I won't book. go into detail, why. but well, yeah, when that... Yeah. She's... But, you know, it's like... Yeah. What... Like, not a good enough reason to cast aside your most trusted and talented advisor when you're risking everything on this one battle. Not what you want to do is cast him away because... You don't like that he's a gay, you know. It, it's like a crazy thing to do, but you know, Leo is kind of—he's um, arrogant, he's um, and bigoted, bigoted for sure. He's been bigoted a few times, also. So it's like yeah. doesn't have that kind of emotional depth or maturity to be like, you know, it's okay that people are different from you and you can still work with them and like like them and all these other things. It's like you don't need to be so bullheaded and obnoxious. So um but that's just another one of Leo's big mistakes, um, which is how he ends up losing ultimately this big battle at the end. But I like the scene where Leo is preparing to leave to go to Midterland, and then you have Finry begging him not to go. And this, this idea of, you know, learning from past mistakes and not, you know, not repeating the same mistakes as the last generation. And here's Leo just charging into the same issues his, that we've seen before. And here you have his mom, Finry, begging him not to go, being like, you don't understand. Yuru Sulfur's there and lets him go, which is kind of interesting, and he just won't listen. And Savine says, oh, you're yesterday's woman, which is, like, well, I think that's harsh. in the prose, right? She doesn't say that, actually. To she doesn't. Well, she thinks it. <laughs> she thinks it. Yeah, she's like, I feel, she basically is reflecting that she feels bad, but she's like, eh, Finry's yesterday's women. woman. This is time. And that's an interesting, that's a... Uh, a through a through line that runs in a lot of Abercrombie's work is this idea of like yesterday's man, yesterday's woman, like, yeah. uh, and I think that Glockta or not Glockta, um, Casca, Casca has a moment mm. where he's talking to someone in I think it's Red is Country. It, it and sounds like, like Red Country. Yeah, he's like, I'm yesterday's man, and you, like, are so, like, the time that you would be relevant to is so far away, it might as well have never happened. (laughs) Like, I forget exactly the context. Oh, yeah, he was talking to the ghosts or something like that, I think. The, like, leader of the ghosts, whose name escapes me, and he's like, and the leader of the ghosts is, like, trying to resurrect the quote-unquote dragon, and uh, he's like... Yeah, this <laughs> this is so far in the past; it's irrelevant, and that's part of this theme of having to learn their own. 
go through their own mistakes and learn from those rather than being able to take right. the advice. You, you of can't just teach like everything to the next generation. Sometimes they have to make their own right. mistakes. And I think Clover said something very similar in this book too, of like you can't tell these people what to do. You just gotta let them do it and keep your distance and try not to get killed in the process. <laughs> very you know? Clover. Yeah, <laughs> I think he has those kinds of philosophies about him as well. I mean, it's one of the main themes of the book is this generational. Like, humanity is just always doomed. We're always going to make the same mistakes. Like, it's, it's kind of funny how we do that. But, yeah, that ends, you know, Leo and, and Sveen. That brings us back to, you know, the hanging and or so showing a moment of, of mercy. And the one, you know, quote that Much comes... Much to Euro's sulfur's uh, distaste. Exactly. By the way. My master will be most displeased. <laughs> <laughs> for sure and i think there was like this book has a couple parts in it right and in each part abercrombie drops like an actual quote as he does throughout his whole first lost series and one of them he quotes um frederick nietzsche when he says in times of peace nietzsche nietzsche in times of peace the warlike man attacks himself and this is kind of like to me this is leo to a t where you know everything's good he's got good standing in angland like he's got his health he just can't help but be like enraged and that dinner with orso is like so what are you gonna do you're gonna replace my men with your men and you think that's gonna solve like, anything like my cronies with your yeah, cronies, like exactly. my incompetent like uh, and or so and leo realized he actually didn't have a plan you know he was just like charging in bullheaded he, no plans for the policies he's going to enact once he takes over and Orso's like this is a complete waste that this even had to happen and and you know, I, it's interesting to see. Uh, there's another line in that I wanted to pull something about. Oh yes, a man shows his quality when circumstances are against him. There's another line in this book, and these last moments with Leo when he's like about to be hanged. Like some of the first times he's really been tested and really ever sh- like. Up until now, he's always won, and people have always loved him, and he's almost had this fantasy in his his head that he's immortal, and that comes with youth, right? Thinking that, oh, you can't die, I'll charge in like the heroes of old kind of thing, and now that he's been so utterly defeated, those his narrative in those last few moments of like, what was I thinking that whole time? I had everything and I blew it. It's a really fascinating show of his character. He's finally starting to learn some of these lessons that Finry and Savine and others have been trying to teach him, even Jurand to some extent, teach him that he just kept charging into battle after battle after battle, risking everything. I don't think he realized how much he was truly risking until those final moments. Definitely. And we get a good quote during those seemingly final moments, they are <laughs> final moments in the end, uh, where we get Leo saw now that his father had been wrong. It's after the battle. That's mm. when a man finds out who he truly is. He was no hero. He never had been. He was a fool. A great bloated tower of vanity. <laughs> it had got his friends, his allies, and hundreds who'd followed him killed. Now it would get him killed too. <laughs> only took to complete show. and utter defeat yeah. for him to learn that lesson. <laughs> 
And it's interesting when we have that confrontation between Orso and Leo post-battle, and Orso tells him something along the lines of, like, of all the hundreds of people who have gotten killed in this debacle of a battle, you are one of the few who can truly say that they, like, they are responsible for what happened to them. True. Like they yeah, it's a great moment. made the choices. I mean, Orso that really led up to on their Leo in that scene. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, he walks in there and uh, he's with Bremer Dan Gorst. Mm-hmm. And he's like, just leave me with Leo. And Bremer Dan Gorst doesn't want to do it. And then he's like, what's he going to do? Bite me? Like, <laughs> right. Right. Like, I trust me, I'm I'm safe at this point. Exactly, so. and and that's a really humbling thing for Leo, who uh, up until this point that was his his main strength, his strong body, and now that was completely taken away from him. So it'll be interesting to see where what kind of person he is in the beginning well, we of know. the next book. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well we know, but it'll be interesting to talk about it. Yes, <laughs> Wisdom of Crowds episode, but. We must continue to talk about the trouble with peace. That and must. I think, and Charles, is it? Should we get to some Vic Dan Teufel stuff? This sure overlaps some um, with the. Uh, Let's the, get into Vic um, Dan Teufel because Vic Dan Teufel has a pretty interesting role to play in this book. I think you know she kicks off this book um, in Westport to buy votes which we kind of seen glockta do this in uh the first law trilogy and she's Mm -hmm. trying to stage votes she impersonates shanked to sway a vote and she actually ends up against all the pays an actor to yeah pays an actor to impersonate shanked and against all the odds she's able to secure swing votes in favor of westport Sticking with the union, which she does. No one wanted I, to stay with the union. It didn't really make sense for them to stay with the union, but she fought for those votes and got it done. I really like Vic. I mm-hmm. she is for me the most improved character upon rereads. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first read a little hatred, I was like, "Ah, eh, this character not doing as much for me," but. I've really come around on her, and she's interesting. She's more complex than she seems on the surface. Right. You, she presents this really rough exterior, but deep down, you can you can tell she cares. She's just very jaded and inured mm-hmm. to all of these uh, these things that she's had to d- deal with for so long. But yeah, she. She's able to get that done. Her competence is uh, without doubt. And then she pretty much heads back. Well, there's a great to, line. Oh, oh it should be noted about. that she... A uh, great line. Yeah. You're saying? So when she's uh, trying yeah, to swing this. votes, she's like, they like keep things the way they are. And one of the, one of the gentlemen she's trying to convince to sway the vote goes... But then it's difficult, isn't it, to make a passionate argument for what you already have. Mm. So boring. Whereas the delightful alternative, a bouquet of promises, a sack full of dreams, a glorious ship of fantasies undamaged by collision with actually getting anything done. And that is such a great line to kick off 
this book because it's kind of the same thing that happens with Leo where it's like, yeah, this this whole passionate idea for what could be. Uh, think of this, like, what we have, who cares? <laughs> it's not exciting. And then you could also say that the same thing for these riots that are happening, uh, the civil unrest as well. It's like, how can you defend what currently exists? Boring. Let Give me the alternative. Mm-hmm. So it's just a strong quote to kick off this whole book. It kind of touches on one of those themes of like people it's just running towards the, the shiny object. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the great change. But yeah. from what to what? It's yeah. like <laughs> the same thing, like you said, with Leo trying to One make some sort of change the because the closed <laughs> council is corrupt. But you're going to put Isher on the closed council now? Right. Oh, yeah. That's going to be much better. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, this idea of it's a lot easier to sell the idea of things are bad now, so they should change, even if the idea of what it would change to, it's not actually any better. And like you said, right, big theme for this whole thing. Um, Vic also gets one the for uh, big First Law fans who have been following along all these books. She has a really interesting moment, one of, one of the moments that actually bridges the gap between some of these larger forces in the world, um, meaning Monza Mercato's right. crew. She gets, yeah, she gets basically kidnapped by Casimir Shanked and Shiloh Vitari, yeah, two people Vitari we remember well from previous books. <laughs> Yeah, and the minister of it's, whispers. It's interesting. It's another. It's on another one where it's like a shame that these characters don't get to play a bigger role. It's just a, for me, it's actually kind of a shame that in general, like the Styrian characters, don't mm. get to play as big a role because there's so yeah. many great characters. Monza Mercato is completely missing in terms of any on-page appearances. She's mm. referenced, so that part's a bummer, but. It is a cool scene when Shanked shows up and Vitari, and they're basically like, hey, you're good at what you do. And the way that I deal with people who beat me in <laughs> in these little chess games is I say, you want to be on my team? Right. And right. A lot yeah, of... And they um, spare. They do spare. Mm-hmm. A lot of Teufel's negotiations are like, we both know that promises mean nothing. And then they somehow are just like, mm-hmm. we trust that as long as it stays in your best interest, you'll stick around kind of a thing. It's how she always kind of ends up all these, quote, like smart people, these negotiators, these these players of these conspiracies are all like that. They're like, you can't expect me to actually say, yes, I'll join you, right? Like, that's not something that's going to happen. She has the same conversation with Pike at the end. But for right now, yeah, it's interesting to see them be like, so you want to join us? And she's like, uh, I, you expect me to say yes now, but would you believe it, you know? And Vitari's like, okay, I can respect that. <laughs> right, and Vitari's holding out hope that Vic will join in the end, so she gives her... Uh, a bar, yeah, basically the address to a bar <laughs> to go to in case she changes her mind. Mm-hmm. And that, that plays a role in connecting, even though she doesn't change her mind here, it does play a role in connecting um, connecting Orso to uh, 
right to and it, the scene also does a few other things one Japo. it exposes um it exposes Vic to the truth behind Baez and Valentin Bach mm-hmm. and the real power behind the union. She also says, I owe Glockta. Like, that's what gets her off the hook and gets her free. Because Vitari can understand because she worked with Glockta a lot back and mm-hmm. before they're hanged. And right. I actually before think... Before he was old sticks. Young was, sticks. Yeah. <laughs> that's what she said. She was like, <laughs> back when he was young sticks. <laughs> when um actually it, it was glockto that spared her life right so um mm-hmm. i guess that like those phrases kind of kept let fatari agree to let her go and giving her the contact information and it's interesting that vic also feels like she owes glockta and there's a bunch of conversations around that like vic has that conversation with glockta later on vic has a similar conversation with pike about like look it's done to you, you do it to others, and you teach people to do it. And that just keeps going, and you can't think about it. You can't mm-hmm. feel too bad about it. It just happens and happens and happens. And that's kind of where Vic is right now with this book, too. It's like, I owe Glock this, so that's where I'm going to stay. Definitely. And there's that moment where Glockta sits her down after Glockta mm-hmm. has to step down, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess we didn't talk about in too much detail, but locked has to step down because he's affiliated with the the rebels like it's his daughter and his son-in-law so he can't be the arch lector anymore and pike takes over but he sits down with vic and he's like you have to forgive yourself which is an interesting locked a moment right? and forgive yourself a lot for of that betraying tender. your brother not like for for you know anything that may have happened between the two of them but it's like hey right not your fault you sold out your brother who's going to get himself killed anyway. You were surviving. You bought your own freedom. You can't feel bad about that. Which, easy yeah. for Glockta to say, he makes those hard decisions all the time. Right. And with Vic, we get a lot of these moments with her negotiating with folks. She's always impressive. She always does a good job of saying just enough lie and just enough truth. Uh, right. There's like she does that where she's sent over to say that she's a spy and in touch with Brent and he's gonna and she's able to trick Savine even right because she stole she, the ring off of Brent's finger and used that as like Brent gave me this <laughs> it's like right. she's, she's described as like the best liar there is like she's she calls herself like the best liar ever. And part of it is how she weaves in the truth. Mm-hmm. And she, there's a great start to the chapter around then where she just goes through how she never really had natural facial expressions. So everyone was like, wow, she doesn't, like growing up, mm-hmm. she doesn't really show a lot on her face. So then she just practiced giving <laughs> facial expressions. Right. And then she's able to... She reaches a point where it's like, and then everyone was saying to me when I was a kid, like, oh, poor thing. Her feelings are written right on her face. (laughs) And it's, yeah, it's interesting how she became such a great liar. I love that, Dean. And I also love when she rolls up to, (laughs) to get the message to Leo. And they're like, you could be a spy. And she's like, I am a spy. 
for you. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right? right? It's like, and it just goes. Yeah, the it's lead the up to that is so great. She's like, I'm about like, to pull off one of the best lies I've ever told. <laughs> it's like she's, right. she's psyching herself up for it, and it's great. Yeah. And that's when she knew she had him. Time to dig it in, like dig the hook in, you know. And like, here's here's the moment where I try and sell them on the real lie you know and like she's (laughs) plotting it out she's she has it all orchestrated it was a really fun scene to read and it's so funny to read leo from the outside just hungrily snapping onto that lie and just eating a plateful of lies gladly you're like oh come (laughs) on leo but she tricks savine too that's That's shocking yeah tricking savine is more impressive and gunner broads also in the mix there and he has a history with her so it's very impressive as as orso notices at one point he's like if we had like uh uh you know tr- I don't know how many he says, like a hundred Victan Teufels on staff that we probably wouldn't even be fighting this war, but exactly. she is extremely competent. Exactly. And, and she, we only, the only thing really to get into, I think left with Vic is probably the reveal about Pike. I think so. She does have this companion, right? Her assistant, which she's been, blackmailing to stay with her but also she's kind of showing some emotional connection to them so it's like that's like kind of a sub thing it's like does she dare to feel anything you know and then she's being told to forgive um herself for her brother like these cracks in the facade her and her facade are like starting to come in with galacta leaving and and Meanwhile, while she's dealing with all of that, she walks into her first trap, really, with Pike, revealing himself to be the Weaver. And how fun is this where, you know, we are first introduced to the world of the first law. It's like one of the first chapters with Glockta mm-hmm. torturing Pike. And now here we are at, you know, the end of Trouble with Peace with uh, Pike being the Weaver. It's the, it, kicking us off into the final book of the series. It's it's a full circle moment it is and pike has had such an interesting life i feel like he has been involved in so many important events it's and he recounts some of them here it's interesting to hear i always love when they talk about west in these books (laughs) and he's like yeah i got it i got sent to penal colonies by glockta long enough to get my face all messed up And then I ended up getting saved by Column West. He's like, that was a man to admire. <laughs> and it's like, but they never live very long, do they? Right. And then he's like, so eventually I figured out I just got to align myself with Glock. He, oh, he also is like, yeah, I held a shield in the fight between Fenris and Logan. Right, right. Like the bloody knife. It's like all this stuff. It's like, oh, my God, Pike, you've been through it. You've right. been involved in all these things these epic moments throughout the series well said and now he's reached a point where he's revealing to vic that he feels like there needs to be a great change and he says the weaver is a name that he has done from time to time mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's a cool reveal one that again is way better 
if you've read everything leading up oh to goodness, this, yes. it's like kind of <laughs> out of nowhere. I feel like if you have only read the trilogy, it's like, oh, okay, I guess it was that guy Pike. But as you said, full circle. Full circle yeah. in the circle of the world. Indeed. Charles. Even like Sharp Ends, you get a little prequel to Pike and Glockta. And it's like, how mm. far have we come since those days that we're now here on the precipice of a great change? Valentin Bonk is burning. And that leads us into the wisdom of crowds, essentially. That's how this book ends, is... Um, with Pike and Vic burning the city down. And then Pike's like, so you're going to join me, right? And she's like, uh, I don't really have a choice. Do I? <laughs> like, side you side with the winners. That's what she always says. And, mm-hmm. um, well, I think Clover says that, actually. I don't remember. But anyway, she's all... She, but Clover does say that. Clover says it, too, at least. But do they both say it in the same exact way? I think the that exact quote is more of a Cloverism, right, I right. think, but... Either way, she has the same attitude, and she knows when she has no choice. I mean, Pike tells her, oh, yeah, you could just go if you don't want to be a part of this. And she thinks back, it's like, this guy apparently has been on the side of the great change. And back in Valbeck, he hanged, like, hundreds of people. And, like, if that's what he'll do to people on his own side, I don't really want to cross this guy. Exactly. She describes it as falling into a trap. She's like, oh, my gosh, I fell into this trap with Pike. Like, this is trouble. It's funny. It's like Pike starts talking about his story. And Vic's like, something's wrong here. (laughs) I I messed up Mm -hmm. somewhere. And I'm stuck in this situation. (laughs) It's kind of funny. It sets this very ominous tone for, like, you're not quite sure how to feel about what's happening right now. Vic is uncertain. Some crazy stuff is happening with this rebellion, and you know, thanks to um, thanks to Brock, they're armed. <laughs> Savine and Brock, right. uh, Brock. I mean, about that Savine so much, and Brock, yeah, that they're Savine. armed now. So mm-hmm. it's this whole chain of issues that leads us into the wisdom of crowds. But I mean, but we can't get into the wisdom of crowds just yet, Charles, because we don't want to do the dogman's daughter dirty. <laughs> and we have some other perspectives to talk about, and That's I think right. chief among back them is probably phrase. Ricca. Yes, we need yeah. to make sure we talk about Ricca's arc here. So we'll make sure we handle that um, as great a way as we can, given the time constraints here. So... The main thing with Ricca is in the last book, she had opened her long eye, um, forced it open during the duel between Leo and Stour. And then she went through this chapter of having a bunch of visions mixing up the present with the past and the future. It's basically made her like unable to, to function. <laughs> she doesn't know what's reality, really. Mm-hmm. And there are these almost memento like uh <laughs> the, the nolan film uh scenes it's just like moving backward and time each scene because this hasn't happened yet because this already happened yeah. you know the way that surreal chapter goes right it's like mm-hmm. bounce back into the far past now and then the whole thing was kind of trippy honestly Mm-hmm. And eventually we reach this point where they run to 
I, we've been struggling to say this name since the original. <laughs> What's more trippy, Erica's visions or the fact that Karib Car- makes an appearance? Karib, <laughs> I think. Carib. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, before we read The Trouble with Peace, I was like, at least we're done with that name. But <laughs> we're back. It's C-A-U-R-I-B, Karib. And you think Stephen she's the witch back in the good old days where there was that scene where the dog man and Harding Grimm, I believe, Mm -hmm. and then Black Dow were all kind of under her spell. And then Black Dow splits her head open with (laughs) an axe. So it was during uh, Logan versus the feared. And then it was Grimm and Dogman that were under her spell. And Black Dow mm. snuck up behind her and just caved her head in. It was so great. Classic and he also really like charged into the castle too. Black Dow did. It's like a funny, yeah. funny series of events there. And who would have thought that Kareem would survive? But apparently the Shanka stitched her skull back together with golden wire. And there's a funny line where she's like, if I had all the answers, do you think I'd be here? <laughs> there's that, that moment where, she's, where Rick is like, how can you be sure? And it's like... He's like, I don't know. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> a funny little story there about Kareeb getting some personality. Um, so that's when she gets the crazy tattoos to control the maddening magic of the long eye. Yeah. And she basically had to choose between her two eyes it's like should she go full long eye or should she go full non-long eye and she goes for the long eye and ricka ricka has an interesting journey here but we'll have to get further into it after we do the dog man some some credit here the guy she comes back and the dog man has passed away and i feel mm. like that's a really sad moment it is i i wrote in our episode season. notes i wrote rip to the goat because uh, dog man was the best of us you know and off screen death it's almost like Rick was even like what would you know her father think of her with these crazy tattoos and he never got to see her unfortunately um I, I mean, yeah, it was, I think we need to just kind of, there's some lines from the eulogy that Ricka gives to dog, about the dog man that I really liked. I want to make sure I grab it here, but um, such a, such a sad moment for all of us first law So fans. what do you think, Charles? Was the dog man done dirty by this off-screen death? Um... That's a good question. I think it was tasteful. You know, the guy got to mm-hmm. go out on top. Everyone liked him. He wasn't... He didn't have a moment of, like, selfishness or hard decisions he had to make or anything. You know, he got to go peacefully in his sleep with the respect mm-hmm. of everyone that worked with him. giant mattress. In his giant mattress because he's tired of sleeping on the cold hard ground you got to find comfort where you can it was a nice little character moment as much as you like to think that um, an on-screen death for dogman would have been nice what would it have been he felt he died in his sleep um it's almost like i mean he's 
not going to have this epic moment uh, on the battlefield at that point. He was yeah. too kind of sickly and old and weak. And mm-hmm. but now, he, now the dog man's under the dirt. Under he's back the dirt, to the mud. Back to the mud right? <laughs> under the dirt. Yeah. I think was it. He's back yeah. to the mud for sure. And I'll just to do the dog man respectfully here. I'm going to read a piece of the of the eulogy. So let's all bow our heads. And uh, here mm-hmm. we go. In hard times, it's easy to become hard. But here was a man who always looked for the best in folk. Didn't always find it, but never gave up looking. Wasted no time polishing his own name, singing his own songs. Didn't have to. That may have been Shivers, actually, that said that. I don't remember. But great summary for Dogman. One of these rare characters in the Abercrombie universe that, you know, goes out on top and liked no regrets kind of a situation and um yeah r.i.p the dog man we've had some heavy losses in this year's real goats um leaving us before their time (laughs) we've got jazal we've got dog man you know there's not many left of the og crew but dog man was one of the word of what's going on with logan (laughs) (laughs) yeah who knows with logan Glocked is still around. <laughs> Baez is around. Right. Who knows what's going on with um God, what's her name? The POV. Pharaoh? Pharaoh. Yes, Pharaoh? Yes, Pharaoh. Oh, I forgot Pharaoh. Oh. <laughs> Who knows Pharaoh is probably wreaking havoc. Uh well they say that um Kalul was killed by a demon. Yeah. You know, that was the rumor. Um that we don't know for certain, but um yeah, it's kind of funny that that is probably her but we can't be sure we didn't see it with our own eyes so causing chaos in the south i would imagine chaos in the pharaoh yeah no word from pharaoh Mm -hmm. and even even less from logan since red country indeed he rode off into the sunset you gotta think that that's the last we'll see of him but you never know we thought we were done with him before and then he popped up in red country so Anything's possible. Uh, but no, it's not possible. It's Dogman coming back. He is very much dead. <laughs> I don't know if Carib came back. That's true. Yeah, there's skull split. Could get a zombie Dogman stitched Ooh, together. Dogman? Demon Dogman? It's possible. Mm. Um, you know, Shivers is still around. And there were some nice moments, some nice Shiver moments in this where it's like, it's in this book, right? Where he's like, I've. I like squeezed goat milk through a sack and raised mm-hmm. you and you gave me new purpose in life. And also there was a moment where he's like twiddling the ring on his finger, which is another great callback to. Um, he's done that before too. Mm-hmm. Anytime he's talking about something that like reminds him of uh, lost love, <laughs> trouble and yeah, <laughs> or just trouble and hysteria and the lessons right. he learned. He, right, right. Sometimes he'll fiddle with that. Yeah. Right, so those were some sweet, touching moments too. And Shivers still by her side. I love the Shivers Ricka combo. It comes out strong when you know Ricka's first act as you know the new dog man. She has to, as Isern always says, make of her heart a stone. She turns away Stour Nightfall, and she quickly forces Oxel, who's pro North, and Red Hat, who's pro Union to fight to the death in the circle 
And then, of course, when Oxel wins, he's like, yay, now we're joining the North, finally. She's like, no, now you have to fight Shivers. <laughs> like <laughs> fight that my whole, champion. Yeah, that is something I'd love to see put to film because those moments are so tense. You get this moment, too, where everyone's just like, do we really have to fight right now? No one really wants to. And Rick is like, yeah, 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 look, I made the circle. Here it is, quickly, quickly, quickly. No one think too much about it. Like, let's go. You guys have an agreement? Mm-hmm. We're in the North. And then they're like, why don't you fight? She's like, oh, no, I wouldn't put my, you know, female body parts in the circle. You guys do it. I don't know if we can say the T word. <laughs> Probably show. can, but either way, yeah, it's a funny fight because they're both way past their prime, Octal and Red Hat. So right. it's kind of the way it ends is it's more of an accident than anything who right. ends up and winning. Abercrombie like, captures this great mood f- in the room of like, no one's ready for, they haven't worked themselves yeah. up to it. There's kind of like, it, it seems almost kind of like a silly, awkward thing to do to fight, which is like, you know, it's like, when is there ever a, but Rick had kind of put them in a position where it was mm-hmm. the only option. Right. And then Shivers is there to fight Oxel, and I think Oxel tries to take Shivers by surprise, and it's like, Shivers is One probably the, the most feared man in the North at this point. So I wonder who would Oxel win in like Shivel, Shivers versus Gorst. That'd be a good fight. I do think about that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, gotta... I would side with Gorst, probably. Yeah, I mean, Gorst but... is just a powerhouse. But, yeah, I don't know. Shivers learned some hard lessons, you know. He... I think the thing about Shivers is there's actual moments, at least in the past, where he seemed to meet someone who was his match, like even Friendly. Mm-hmm. Like you remember the fight yeah. between Friendly and Shivers yeah. in Besser of Cold is an actual good fight. And I think we've just never seen anyone who is able to give Gorst a one-on-one good fight. So I'm going yeah. with Gorst. Yeah, Gorst is a safe bet. Well, Jazal successfully defeated him in the tournament. <laughs> oh, yes. With no no help whatsoever from any outside magical forces. You're, you're correct. <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah, so yeah, that would that's a good match that we'll never see. Well, maybe we will see it in the next book. Well, maybe know. in Wisdom of Crowds. <laughs> yeah, maybe in Wisdom of Crowds. We'll see if they ever converge. <laughs> I'm cheering, rooting for them. <laughs> but anyway, you know, Rick is, in, in one fell swoop, she affirms her position as the new dogman. And she also says, look, we're staying independent. And she was able to do that in one fell swoop. And I think, she, you know, Rick is interesting because she recognizes she has to make the hard choices and she's not afraid to make them quickly she doesn't hesitate to make the hard choices you know eastern has been counseling her her whole life shivers has been counseling her her whole life and she's like okay this is what needs to happen it's brutal like the it's an awkward moment when these two realize they have to fight to the death and they don't really want to and she's making it happen you know it's kind of evil but you can't argue with the results only two people died and now her whole her whole realm, her whole group is united. So props to Rika in those moments. You know, we already talked about her talk with Savine and how they were getting Savine was kind of bullying her, so she kind of betrays oh, them. Mentioned Charles yeah. uh, when Stour comes to visit, there's this moment where Clover and Shiver see each other and Shiver's like, Hey, 
we really need to have that talk yes. we've been mentioning. Yes. <laughs> and that's I, I caught great that my second time on the yeah. read through. I didn't really pick up on that the first time, but when we reread it in anticipation for this episode, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, she, he does be like, you and I have to have a talk. <laughs> it's like, and it's like ah so this is where it was this is where it was forming where it was happening the seed was planted indeed the seed was planted um not not to be confused not with that the seed. seed yes not that not seed. seed that seed yeah, was not planted <laughs> i think bias has it i don't remember but i'm pretty sure he does no no that's what pharaoh has the seed oh pharaoh ha- still has the seed Oh, she yeah, stole it. Yeah, that's what she ran off with at the end. Oh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, like yeah, yeah, her. Yeah. That's where she's getting all that power to be able to cause all those. That's right. Issues Bias still had it. Who knows what he had done? Bias <laughs> couldn't wield it. That's why he had Pharaoh in the crew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well Needed said. someone demon blood. Exactly. Anyway, not that seat. We digress. We digress. <laughs> Second digress in the past. 10 minutes but that's okay so yeah 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 yeah. so rika agrees to join the alliance but she betrays them tips off or so um and then after the battle it's you know well the battle's happening she just goes and takes um scarling's hall and sits in scarling's chair which makes like bold move bold move makes sense right Stour and i falls Sails for Middleland, leaving it open. And what she does is she uses a little bribery and kills a few key people and manages to work her way in. And that was kind of a fun series of events. She like has the chest of gold at the gates and she opens it. And she's like, now this gold is for whoever lets me in and <laughs> whoever doesn't is going to get attacked. And she just instantly commands that respect and people start following her without like even realizing it. It's because she's able to create these situations she's prepared and she's forces people to make fast choices on their feet doesn't give them time to think it's like hey do this or you die and it's like oh okay uh, makes sense like let's, let's go and she secures scarling's chair and also has clover betray stour in one fell swoop she's sitting pretty pretty at the end of the uh at the end of this book here that she is and probably another thing worth mentioning is she comes into her own in this book with how to use the long eye as mm-hmm. more of a political maneuver mm-hmm. rather than just, you know, actually trying to interpret it honestly. Like when she shows up to take Scarling's chair, she's like, I've already seen myself sitting on that thing. So I know that I end up there. It's just up to you all right. how you want to handle me getting there. Like, right. do you want to die on your way or do you want to make money on the way? Right. Right. Where do you people as my enemies want to benefit? It brings me but back. But I'm that going point. to take that chair. I've seen right. it already. Exactly. And she uses it like to freak out Stour Nightfall's crew. She like tells Greenway, she's like, "Hey, you're gonna die on the water." And then he's like freaked out of water. <laughs> the rest of the world. and it comes true. It does come true. <laughs> but it reminds me of that quote I read earlier in the episode. I find reputations rarely fit people all that well. What are they after all? The costumes we put on to disguise ourselves. And here's Rika using the long eye and her reputation 
to move things along a bit faster. She's like, look, I have the long eye. I've seen it. Like, leave the planning to me. Don't worry. Just go and do what I want you to do and leave the, like, future seeing to me. I got you. You can trust me. You know, she's using that reputation to plant herself in Scarling's chair. And it worked pretty seamlessly. She's made an enemy of Black Calder, which he is a dangerous guy to get tangled with. You know, mm-hmm. we've rooted for Calder in the past with the heroes. And now here he is as public enemy number one. It's um, going to be an interesting matchup as we set into the wisdom of crowds. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, last thing worth mentioning is she brings the nail to her side and yes. the nail his at the beginning of the book we had that moment where Stower is putting the nail's father in the cage and he ends yeah. up killing him yeah. and that ends up being one of those uh, seeds of the past that uh, uh, what grows fruit one. in the present that was like a mm-hmm. quote but where we get clover and the nail and shivers all together taking their vengeance on stour but we've got i mean we definitely need to get into gunner broad and clover to some extent i think we've covered a a lot of of clover i will say his chapters are like really funny I always appreciate his chapters and the crew he has, the lady who's just slicing the cheese. And, you know, there's a couple of those character moments are fun. And the way he's trying to help people, there's that line where it's like, oh, I never thought I'd, like, be putting heads in a sack. It's like, well, no one sets out to do that. It just kind of happens to you, and, well, there you are. You know, he's like, um, I love how the phrase... um, better do it than live with the fear of doing it kind of permeates in the new generation you know of people attribute it to different people and you know right. even like leo saying it um uh, well a lot of it came from the dog man right a rick is saying are, it right but shivers is saying like it. Uh, i think clover yeah. says it i can't remember maybe not but it's just, it's just funny to see some of those isms coming through up in the north Um, And that originally came from Logan's father. Not even Logan. (laughs) Well, who knows who it came from. said that at some point. (laughs) And now, yeah, true. But now it's just spread all over the north. Yeah, this is one of those isms. Um, I'm trying to think. um, You know, Clover has shown that uh, there's that scene where he kills some of his own men when they accidentally kill some peasants. Yeah. there's the scenes where he's trying to get the wolf to retreat. You know, he's this voice of wisdom, but he has a weird philosophy. It's kept him alive, but it's also just like this, you know, you betray whoever, you side with the winners, this, that, and the other. And then the scene where he betrays Stower is is so great. And then when he thinks of Wonderful in those moments, too, because the, uh, the end of a little hatred where he kills Wonderful mm-hmm. is so shocking and it, is. it makes you rethink a lot about Clover. And then he kind of is like, I had no choice. And now here's my redemption. You know, all about seizing those little moments. Yeah, for all for all wonderful cares about it, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you still killed your friend. You know, some would say, you well, you'd sooner die friend. than kill your friend or something. But, you know, it is what it is. Guy's a survivor right. in hard times. Yeah. 
Um, so I take out the tendons uh, behind oh, both knees for Dowler. It's a shivers. brutal... For some reason, it's visceral, right? Yeah. When it happens, for all the violence that we deal with in these books, there's something about that moment that... You almost like feel it, right? Yeah, when you think about I, how much pain and suffering Stowers caused, even when he's the victim, you're still like, ooh, that's kind of brutal. Right. <laughs> kind of harsh, don't you think? I think the way it's described is such a... It's like a casual moment for someone like Shivers, or he just kind of like does it in an almost offhand seeming way. And then they're like, oh, you shouldn't just leave him lopsided now. He takes out the other one. <laughs> It's yeah. just, it's sudden, it's brutal, and does does the great wolf deserve it? You can definitely make a case for that, but it's, and there's the it whole conversation watch, around, like, you didn't earn your name, everything you got, you were mm-hmm. given to from Calder, like, there's harder names out there, like, we're done with you, kind of a thing. And it's the same lesson that Leo had to learn to some extent of, like, inheriting all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Orso's living it. He maybe he has learned the lesson, but there's not much he can do about it. Kind of a thing with Orso as much. Uh, but right. yeah, it's those interesting dynamics, and it comes like that arc kind of that theme kind of comes to a head with the betrayal of of like Clover to Stower, where it's like you didn't earn any of this. You have no respect, and you've just charged into blunder after blunder, and I'm done with you. And that's how we kind of end I, all the northern stuff. I do like that moment you're talking about with the you didn't earn your name because he goes through some of these legendary heroes that we know well, right? Mm-hmm. I think he mentions the Bloody Nine and he talks about some of these uh, guys that we're very familiar with mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, blacked out. Not necessarily people worth looking up to, but mm-hmm. uh, anyway... He has this name, Stour Nightfall, that's literally, I believe, he was born during an eclipse. And even that, it was like, oh, well, it wasn't exactly during the eclipse. It was <laughs> the same night. And it's an interesting thing to point out from Clover where the name, it's literally given to him because of the day he was born. Right. It plays on <laughs> that theme of you didn't earn this. You were literally born with a name about the day you were born. Right. And meanwhile, <laughs> yeah. these people earned it. Yeah, these deeds. other people earned them. Right. Yes. Even Calder, who earned the name Black Calder by <laughs> taking the North from Black Dow and having, oh, what character was it that called it? It was... Um, Stranger Come Knocking? Stranger Come Knocking. Yeah, great, yeah, yeah. great memory there, Charles. Yeah, Stranger Come Knocking was like, no, he's black. <laughs> black Calder. <laughs> it turned like, out to be a plant like, from Bias, <laughs> by the way. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if he just thinks that black is like the name Honorary that you title. pass on to the next, like an honorific, yeah, to the next leader of the North, but whatever. It sticks. So, <laughs> black Calder. Yep. yep. That'll be an interesting enemy to face for sure. The last character mm-hmm. we need to talk about here is Gunnar Broad. Um, and we'll go through him pretty quickly. He doesn't do too much in this one. He kind of reminds me a lot of Logan in some ways where he like swears off violence. like But meanwhile, everything he does brings himself towards violence. 
Um, it starts with his family working for Savine, and his whole family's happy. They're a way higher social status, economic status than they were before. Uh, and that leaves Broad resentful and conflicted. Like, he's always, like, wringing his hands. He's always got this taste for violence. Well, it's good to have a routine, Charles. It's good to have a routine, exactly. The thing where he's always fiddling yeah. with the glasses. It's kind of funny. Um, but in Angland, Savine gives Broad a new task, which is to make contact with the Breakers and bring them into the alliance that is forming against the Close Council. And, of course, that gets him in touch with Judge. And the way he gets Judge to like let him go and agree to take up arms is that he was involved in this attack on like a mayor of a bank of Valentin Balk. It's like, okay. And then he goes along with it the whole way. And we have these moments where he just can't help himself but get extremely violent. Right. Like he he has he kind of breaks down and goes into full uh I mean he goes into full I don't want to say um, like a full rage, but once he gets going, he will get very, very violent very quickly. And Judge is kind of having some of those moments. Almost that remind me of when Black Dow looks at Colum West mm. and he's like, nice. respect, <laughs> right? Way to go, Furious. He's like, I knew you had it in you. And he calls him Furious. It's like those moments are kind of judge looking on broad. It evokes that where it's like, I knew I knew you're a man of violence. You're just like me. You don't you're not happy unless things are getting bloody. And of course, Broad's like, oh no, I'm, I don't want to be like that. That's not who I really I am. I'm just with trying to keep family. my family yeah. happy. <laughs> it's like none of the decisions you make resemble like exactly. the choices that you'd be. I mean, I get the idea to some extent that what he's doing for Savine is the best way to give the other members of his family a good life, but. He's not exactly passing up opportunities to get violent. Certainly not. And what's interesting about when he does get violent is he's just like his chapters kind of go by and you're like, okay, okay. But he plays key pivotal roles sometimes when he shows up. And the key thing that he does in this book is he like helps keep Leo alive in those final moments, you Mm -hmm. know, and can you imagine if Broad wasn't there, what could have happened? Leo could have potentially died in battle. And so the fact that he's there, that key act of violence when it's needed, he comes in, maybe he changed the tide. Who knows? I mean, certainly Orso had the opportunity to hang Leo and chose not to, but there is Gunner Broad always uh, popping up on behalf of Savine to to kind of save the day with this burst of competent violence. Very true. There are these moments where history turns on the actions of Gunner Braun. Exactly. Which, yeah, those are very interesting because he just doesn't seem like... He comes from very humble He's not political. He's and, got he's, no aspirations. He's happy yeah. to serve Savine like... But because he's pointed in direction and told to go, and he's very competent when he does go, and he's like committed more to violence than to any sort of side, 
like maybe saving Leo is not the best thing for anybody, but he's like, that's where he's told to go. And he's like, okay. And then he goes and does it, you know, it's like men like that can turn the tide just as much as someone like Leo or Savine or something like that. True. So History I, won't remember him in all likelihood. He's not going into any textbooks or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But he, History would have forever been altered without the actions of Gunnar Broad. Exactly. So one of the smaller POV characters, but certainly not to be discarded. And um, we look to see how he faces the great change and his relationship with the Burners and Judge and all of that um, as we go into Wisdom of Crowds. It's Certainly a to go into exciting wisdom premise. of crowds. We must, Charles. I think that we've covered well, how long is this episode? It's gonna be like two and a half like hours, probably. two hours and 15 minutes, something like that. But honestly, I feel like we owe the listeners after this long wait a oh, yeah. nice big episode like this. Yes. And once we get talking Abercrombie, we just can't stop, it we, feels like. We can't right? stop. And there's only one more book left, so we need to treasure these moments while we can. I'm sure we'll have, you know, character breakdowns and this, that, and the other. But in terms of literature, we only have one book left in the first law universe. So we must treasure these conversations while we can. That is so true, Charles. And I always treasure these conversations oh. with you, my lifelong friend. <laughs> but for now, Charles, I think we, I think we did, I think we did this book justice. Mm-hmm. I, I hope to do the same when we go on to the wisdom of crowds. There's a lot to talk about in that one. We've both already sure, read that, sure. but we'll be sure to do a nice reread to get fresh and ready for another deep dive into a first law book and then it's it's so weird charles it's so weird to think that there'll be no other available (laughs) first law content for us to talk about obviously like you said we'll we'll keep analyzing the first law even once we've talked about each of the on this journey like a year and a half ago almost two years ago and right here we are near end in sight but there'll be, you know, Abercrombie, as he said in our interview, is a bright young voice in this genre with mm-hmm. a lot more stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Last I heard, he was working on something that was actually not in the first Law universe at mm-hmm. all called, uh, was it the Demons or the Devils? Let me see if I can search that up real quick. Um, hmm. But then... Based on what we talked about in the let me see if I interview, can find this. The Devils is slated for publication in 2025? Joe. <laughs> I hope he's not less. I mean, hey, there's the no way he's wrapped up this trilogy last year, you know? He's, he's probably written like a bunch. You know how he does. He like finishes all the writing for a whole series and then slowly releases yeah. it after that. So maybe that's what we're getting here, but. Maybe we'll have to just ask him. Standalone, though. Hmm. Yeah, maybe we will have to just ask him. I I would find it hard to believe that Joe Abercrombie would not publish a book for three years. That seems unlike him. But I guess how long was it in between the standalones? And he deserves a break. You know, all these thoughts in your head can't be. 
good for your long-term health. You know, it's good he got him out in writing, and we all get to love it, and now he gets to, you know, do other things. Um, he wrote that Love, Death, and Robots episode. At least we forget that. He did. Um, I'm looking now, I guess, so we had Red Country in 2012, and then he wrote Sharp Ends in 2016. Hmm. So I guess we've had we've had breaks like that. He wrote, uh, well, he wrote some other books in between. He wrote Half a King. Half yeah, he the had the, World, the YA series. The YA series, yeah. Well, all right, but I don't, I don't know if we've gone three years without a single Abercrombie book before, but you know, there's plenty of content to get into mm-hmm. in the meantime. I don't have to worry about that, and we're excited for when that next book comes out and based on what he told us a while back he does seem to plan to continue to move the first law world forward there was a moment where i said first law in space and i believe joe abercrombie was like huh he did not deny it we'll say that (laughs) right well it seemed almost like i mean i don't want to give myself due credit but almost like i kind of put a little idea in his head you planted the seed dare we say I planted the seed, but not that seed. Not Thomas. that. Not to be confused with the seed. It was a seed, yeah. not Just the seed. seed. Very different. So yes, if you do one day see a first law in space series, is it all <laughs> thanks to me? Of course, of course it is. But I'm too modest to mm, take credit. So for. humble and modest indeed. But well, you know, maybe. Uh, who knows who knows but those will be exciting times um by as i could buy him as like a bezos type he just becomes a, a business conglomerate guy and launches rockets it's just space. He's bald charles <laughs> i mean these last couple of anyone who's listened to our rings of power episode already knows that Charles has some sort of affinity to not affinity bald men where he <laughs> he sees them as father figures and now he sees Baez who's bald well, come on what was like a sort who of in modern Bezos history could be figure. considered a Baez type be honest with yourself is it's one of these guys is one of these capitalist billionaire guys like launching stuff into space <laughs> like definitely one of them yeah. come on yeah I mean it's probably Bezos. I can't think of a a better bias modern. Like you can't pick like a president. Like that's like a Jazal type. You have Jazal right. the president, and then you have Baez the CEO of Amazon. <laughs> like that's the that's where the how the power breaks down. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was I was thinking Bezos is probably the best. Elon Musk is too wacky. He's yeah, kind of not, like, not him. Yeah, all over the place. No, I, I he's like, like a wannabe Bezos. Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is Elon Musk. I, like I was thinking Elon Musk. I'm like, you wish that you were Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. You're trying so hard to be Tony Stark. But yeah, we've had a lot of billionaire talk on the <laughs> on the podcast last couple episodes. Yeah, I think that's a sign we just need to end this thing already. <laughs> Yeah, we should probably call it. Let's get this um, right. outro music pumping. What do you say, Dylan? Let's get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping, Charles. All right. 
Thank you all so much for sticking through to the end of yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, check us out over on social media. We're always down to chat. First Law, all these TV shows coming out. We have a lot of discourse going on. And that's over at Instagram at the FTF Podcast and Twitter at the FTF Podcast with a number one at the end. Now, Dylan, if they like what they heard today and they want to support the show and they already follow us on social media, what can they do? Toss five stars to our podcast. That especially goes out to you, Spotify listeners. You just got two clicks, two clicks away. You just got to click that star ray option. Toss us five and it helps us so much if you're able to do that apple podcast listeners you can throw us a rating and a review as well but just listening is more than enough thank you so much for doing that just listening guys thank you all so much for listening we greatly appreciate it hope to see you again next time and as always go forth and conquer friends